Uh, my thought question for you this morning is kind of a simple one. Are things getting better or are things getting worse? And that, that's kind of a general question, right? Uh, is the world going to hell in a handbasket or is it moving toward a brighter future? Um, should I take a poll? Who's voting for the handbasket? Who thinks that that's what we're going, we're going downhill? Okay, who thinks the world's getting better? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Although it was kind of a lopsided vote, I think. But we'll talk about that. Yeah, trick. it's not a trick question this time. Keith, Keith I, if he's been around long enough, he's always suspicious when I ask a question that it's going to be a trap. But this question, here's the trap. The question is usually kind of theoretical for most of us, right? This is just, oh yeah, is the world doing better or doing worse? This is something we mull over with our neighbors, you know, over the fence, when, when one of you's been watching Fox News all morning and you go to the other one and say, oh, I didn't think anything could get any worse, but they're obviously getting worse, you know, and you have that conversation. And so it's just theoretical, but there are other times in your life when that question is more serious and you have to take it more seriously, like times when you're really going through something like a personal or family crisis or, or, or times when everything in your life seems like it's going from bad to worse. Or maybe even when you look at the world as a whole and you think, boy, what is it going to be like for my children and my grandchildren, and for some of you, my great-grandchildren, to grow up in this kind of a world? And at times like that, it, it really matters to us which way the world is heading, up or down. It matters whether God is really in control. And of course, we say that a lot, and we realize that God really, he is sovereign, he is in control. So maybe it's not, is God in control? But maybe the question is, well, does he have a plan? And, and what is the plan? Because people keep telling us and quoting Jeremiah to us about how God has plans for good and not to harm us and to give us a hope and a future and all that. And yet it's hard to square that with our observations and our experience sometimes. If you'll allow me to maybe indulge myself, because I'm sort of a history buff, uh, allow me to take you back for just a couple minutes into history and, and, and explore the question or, or how Christians have looked at the question over the years of whether the world is getting better or is the world getting worse. And we're going to find, if we do that, that for a large segment of church history, and probably really from most of church history, I would say from the middle of the first millennium, like four or 500 A.D., all the way up through the 1800s, the dominant view among Christians was generally some form of what we today call post-millennialism. And I, that's like seven syllables, right? And it's a $64 theological word. So let me define it for you from today's most popular theological dictionary also known as Wikipedia. This is, this is what it says post-millennialism. I can't even say it. Post-millennialism is. It's not the generation after the millennials, if that's what you were thinking. It says this on Wikipedia. Post-millennialism holds that Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom on earth through his preaching and redemptive work in the first century and that he equips his church with the gospel, empowers her by the Spirit, and charges her with the great commission to disciple all nations. That's pretty good for Wikipedia, isn't it? Then it goes on. Here's where it gets interesting. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of people living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and nations. After an extensive era of such conditions, Jesus Christ will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history with the general resurrection and the final judgment, after which the eternal order follows. So translation for postmillennialism, the church wins, the gospel transforms the nations, things go from bad 
to good, the church brings in what we call the millennium, the millennium, and ushers in this, this kingdom of God on earth, and then at the very end, Jesus comes back to confirm this great victory. That was the view. And in the 1800s, there were a lot of things going on in the world that seemed to support this view. For one thing, the so-called great Christian nations of the West, countries like England and Spain, Germany and France and the Netherlands, they were, they were colonizing and taking over more and more of the world. And those, of course, were supposedly Christian nations. Well, on the heels of these colonizers, or sometimes even arriving before them, and sometimes even going to places that they didn't go, were the Christian missionaries. The 1800s saw an explosion of missionary activity in this world, and the gospel reached so many places, men and women all over the world for the first time, so much so that the great church historian Kenneth Scott LaTourette has dubbed the 19th century, the 1800s, the great century of Christian missions. Meanwhile, back in the United States, in the years following what we call the Second Great Awakening, the gospel also seemed to be advancing throughout the country. In fact, in 1858, there was a huge revival in many of America's big cities. And the optimism of this time, I could have picked a lot of quotes, but here's one from, from Joseph Berg, who was a Dutch Reformed pastor in Philadelphia, and here's what he said. He said, who does not see that with the termination of injustice and oppression, with the establishment of righteousness in every statute book, with art and science sanctified by the truth of God and holiness to the Lord graven upon the walls of our high places and the whole earth drinking in the reign of righteousness, oh, this is the reign of Jesus. 1858. Well, just a few years later, this idea of everything getting better and better started to hit some speed bumps. And the first speed bump was the American Civil War, one of the fiercest and bloodiest conflicts that the world had yet experienced. And this was kind of a punch in the stomach to the optimism of the church, both in the North and South, especially here in the States. Still, in 1862, a poet from New York by the name of Julia Ward Howe, went to visit the camp of some Union soldiers just outside of Washington, D.C., and as she sat around the campfire with them, they were, they were humming along to a little ditty. It was called John Brown's Body. It was about the great abolitionist John Brown who had been recently martyred, and although he was dead, the song they were singing said that his spirit lived on in them even though his body lay a smoldering in the grave. But Julia Ward Howe took those lyrics, or took the, the tune, and she changed the lyrics. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And so the Civil War, for a lot of people, was not, it, it, it was transformed from a great failure into really a great holy kingdom crusade because good could still prevail. And once slavery was abolished, this post-millennial view continued as the church began to tackle new problems because industrialization was happening, and it brought a whole host of challenges with that. And so the church started, challenging, started, started tackling problems like child labor and the mistreatment of immigrants and working-class poverty. That's actually the time the alliance was, was born. And so this idea of the gospel conquering the world and the church bringing the kingdom, it kept marching on. That is until a really, really big speed bump came that knocked pretty much everybody off that bandwagon. And that happened in 1914 with the onset of World War I. 
in which the Christian West was torn apart and men from supposedly God-fearing nations were killing each other on battlefields all over the world. And in the wake of this unprecedented time of horror, questions were being asked. How could Christians do this to one another? How could this kind of inhumanity take place if the kingdom of God was really advancing like we thought? How could things be getting better when we just had probably the worst four years in the history of the world? And in those years, more and more Christians felt themselves being called back to a different view, the view that actually was the view of most of the first and second century Christians way back when, who believed that the only way that things would really get better was for Jesus himself to return and set things straight. And that's where a lot of Christians are today. But that doesn't stop us from asking the questions, why does God let this happen? Both in the world as a whole and in our lives, in our families, in our communities. Is it really his plan that this kind of evil should thrive in this world? How can he sit by and watch this happening and not come back and and loose the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword? Because it seems like the truth is marching backwards most of the time. That's all to set up Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. If you want to turn there, you can. Matthew 13, 24. This is often called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it then have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the people who were alive at that time listening to what Jesus was saying, were probably thinking a lot like those old 19th century post-millennialists. They knew, well, they didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were starting to suspect that Jesus was the Messiah. It was starting to look like that. And if that was the case, then what they naturally would have expected to happen next is that Jesus would bring the kingdom of God to earth. Probably the first thing he was trying to do, they reasoned, was he was trying to lead a spiritual revival in Israel. And then after that happened, because Israel was the kingdom of God. That's all, the kingdom of God had always been that, the nation of Israel. And then leading this revived Israel eventually to throw off the chains of the Roman Empire. And then Jesus would set up his throne in Jerusalem. And then according to the prophet Isaiah, all the other nations of the world would soon learn to come and worship Israel's God. And that would be it the final glorious kingdom of God. 
But Jesus is telling them here that what's actually going to happen is going to be a little different. In fact, a lot different. Because if the traditional view that they held was correct, then, then the wheat, if, if you look at how Jesus' parable might have gone, in that case, the wheat would have grown so healthy and grown so thick that it would have just choked up all the weeds and swallowed everything else up, and it all would have been full of wheat, and so there would have been no need for any angels or reapers to come and sort things out at the end. But the picture Jesus gives them here makes it clear that although the kingdom of God is growing, and it's growing today, symbolized by the wheat, it is growing in parallel with evil forces that are going to be bringing darkness to the world and into the hearts of many people, even people associated with the church, while in the meantime, the true people of the kingdom will be bringing light to the world. Jesus says these things will happen at the same time. And while the light will continue to shine in the darkness, the darkness will remain and even expand right up until the time of the end. Now, during that process, there, there may be places in the field, that is the world, where there are a lot of healthy grains of wheat and other places where it seems like almost everything is overrun with weeds, with just a little bit of wheat creeping in. But the, wheats, the weeds will not be uprooted from the world until the king comes back and instructs his angels to pull them out and to throw them in the fire and then gather up the wheat to bring into his kingdom. And when that happens, there will be no more darkness, there will be no more sin, there will be no more deception, there will be no more obscuring of the light. And so at that point, the, the, the children of the kingdom will be free to shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Amen. And that's the basic meaning of this parable. But the question remains, what does this mean for us today at a time when, yes, the kingdom of God is expanding, but the evil in this world is also growing exponentially, maybe even at a faster pace, it seems? Is there anything that we can, can count on? Is there anything we can bank on? Anything that we know for sure that we can depend on? Let me say yes. In fact, I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning telling you about four things you can count on. Four things that you can take to the bank, four things you can be sure of, given Jesus' parable here of the wheat and the weeds and how it relates to all the other stuff in God's Word. First of all, you can be sure of this, that evil is not going to go away until Jesus comes back. Evil is not going away until Jesus comes back. This dream of the church ushering in this glorious reign of peace and righteousness before Jesus returns to earth is not supported by this parable or by Scripture. Now this does not mean, it does not mean that everything's going to go from bad to worse all the time, every day, everywhere in the world. It doesn't mean that everything's just going to, every time you open the newspaper, it's going to be worse and worse everywhere you live until the return of Jesus. It doesn't mean there can't be improvement. It doesn't mean there can't be revival. It doesn't mean there can't be a turnaround of some kind where the influence of the kingdom is so strong that at least for a period of time, the influence of the wheat totally overwhelms the influence of the weeds. It can happen, and it does, it does happen. One of the most famous examples of this in history, uh, you can read about it, it's called the Great Welsh Revival. It took place in about 1903 and 1904 in the small nation of Wales where over 100,000 people gave their lives to Christ in just a period of a few weeks, really. And worship meetings in Wales during those two years were so popular that people wouldn't go to soccer games anymore. There are, are frequent accounts of bars closing down because there are no customers. The theaters closed because everyone was in church. The courts shut down for lack of crime. Bibles were in short supply because they were being snapped up so fast. And I love this last one. Horses were getting confused because they could no longer understand their owners because they had stopped cussing at them. 
But in general, in general, we cannot expect the growth of the church or the influence of God's kingdom to somehow root out all the evil that surrounds us now. There will still be strong temptations to sin. There will still be people who who rebel against God and who mistreat the people of God. There will still be a, a general moral darkening of the world as different godless philosophies take hold over people in different parts of the world. As Paul says to his young disciple Timothy, listen to these words, he says, Timothy, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So if, if these difficulties become more and more a challenge in your life, in your world, in your family, don't be surprised. They're going to spread right alongside the spread of the gospel. Both will keep growing. The second thing we can be sure of, though, is that God has a good reason for letting this go on. God has a good reason for letting this go on. In the parable, as soon as these weeds are discovered, the servants go to the master and they say, would you, would you like us to do something about this? You see, we, we can try to pull up all these weeds if you want us to. But the master knows that weeds and wheat look awful a lot alike for a while, and he, he doesn't want to hurt the, the wheat. So he says, no, not yet. If you try to do that now, you might harm the wheat itself. So let the good and the bad seed mature and ripen together, and then at the harvest, we'll get it all figured out. So we'll sort it out then, even though we've got all these weeds now, we're just going to have to deal with it. And, and we have to be careful not to stretch the details of a parable too far. People do that. But I need to ask you this question. Is it possible that the reason that God doesn't immediately root out all the weeds in our world today is that as much as he hates the presence of evil in this world, he cares even more about the welfare and the salvation of his children. Now, I can't just support that from the parable alone. But if you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is responding there to some scoffers. And what these scoffers are saying there is, look, where's Jesus? I thought he was coming back. But it's been an awful long time, Christians. Are you sure that he hasn't forgotten about you? And starting in verse 9, Peter says, look, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his his promise, as some people think of slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You see, there are people, there are people all over this world, some of them live in Davidson County, North Carolina, who have yet to come to Christ. Maybe the seed has been planted, Maybe the stalk has begun to develop, but but no heads of grain have appeared as of yet. But God is waiting. God is waiting for that next person to surrender his life to Christ. God is waiting for that next people group to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus. And eventually, God will be waiting for that last people group to hear about Jesus. One of the the ways to say it is, is like this. 
that Jesus is not going to walk down the aisle with his bride until she is complete and made ready. And even though that means she has to go through a time of testing and pain, like her fiancé did, it's going to be worth it for him to see her in her completeness and in her beauty on that day. I don't know all the reasons why God is letting evil proliferate in this world, but I, I do know this, that in the long run, it is for the good of his beloved bride, the church. And I can't tell you all the reasons why you have to go through this stuff, why you have to go through these temptations and disappointments that you face. But I, I know this, that in the final analysis, it is an expression of God's patience and God's love. But here's one more thing I do know, and this is the third thing that you can be sure of. God will one day rid the world of all evil. God will one day rid the world of all evil. If we key in on verse 41 here, we'll see what the evil consists of because Jesus points it out. These are the things that are uprooted. In the, in the ESV, which I read to you, it says causes of sin and lawbreakers. Causes of sin and lawbreakers. These words are worth digging into a little bit because God ridding the world of all evil is a good thing for some people, but it's not a good thing for everyone. And, and we need to be clear on where we are with respect to this verse. We all probably have a pretty good idea of, of what causes to sin means, you know, in our lives at least. We think about the lust of our eyes, the appetites in our body that can get out of hand, the desires that we have for things that don't belong to us or that we're not allowed to have, the way certain people just provoke us to do evil things. We can all point to causes of sin in our lives. And, and Jesus is one day going to banish that whole dynamic, all those things from existence. But even more, this word causes of sin, it almost always refers to actual people. The Greek word is scandalon, which is often tr uh, translated stumbling block, like a rock that, that sticks up out of the ground and trips people up, and it gets, it gets in the way of people following Jesus. And if there's one thing that got Jesus really ticked off when he was walking this earth, that's what it was. Anybody that got in the way of somebody following him. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus strongly condemns the Pharisees for like a whole chapter for not only failing to enter the kingdom of heaven themselves, but from keeping other people from getting in. He says in Matthew 18, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And then most famously in that same chapter, he says this, For whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And when you think about causes of sin, I know we might think of the things in this world that poison our minds and poison the minds of our young people, elements of the entertainment industry, the education establishment, social media companies, etc., and that's fine. Yeah, those are causes to sin, but don't forget that Jesus uses this word more often about religious people, like Pharisees and teachers of the law. He even called Peter a scandal on one time after Peter tried to stop him from going to the cross. He said, you're a stumbling block to me. Use the same word. And here, here's the thing. If you're an influencer of any kind, if you're a leader or influencer is the word we like to use today, right? Of any kind. If you're a parent, grandparent, teacher, if you're a pastor or church leader, if you're a coach, you may not have a, a formal title, but maybe you're a leader at work or among your peers. If there are any people in this world who are watching you and listening to you, and learning from you, and maybe they admire you, and they may even want to be like you, then 
these warnings from Jesus about things like millstones and drowning in the depth of the sea should at least send a chill down your spine once in a while when you think about the responsibility with which you have been entrusted. Being a stumbling block, doing anything that keeps other people away from Jesus is a big deal to him. It really sets him off. And Jesus is one day going to eradicate those things and deal with those people. The other word is lawbreakers. Literally, that reads workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. It's an expression Jesus uses several times. So in this context, this is not a lawbreaker in the sense of someone who just kind of messes up and commits an isolated sin one time. This is a person who lives by his own rules. This is someone who is in rebellion against God. But again, before we turn outward and identify this anywhere and everywhere in our culture, which is of course easy to do, let's make sure we look closer to home because when I see the other places where Jesus uses this expression, it gets a little scary and it reminds us that yeah, sometimes weeds and wheat look a lot alike. Again, he says this to the Pharisees who were the most religious, successful guys at that time. He says that they keep the law on the outside. But he says inside they're full of lawlessness he uses this word same word but he also uses the word in matthew 7 where jesus is talking about something that's going to happen toward the end times and a bunch of people who thought they were going to heaven end up going to hell and they come to jesus and they say lord lord didn't we prophesy in your name didn't we cast out demons in your name didn't we do mighty works in your name and jesus says i will declare to them at that time i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness same word and they they looked an awful lot like his followers you see it's even possible to be a follower of christ and still be a worker of lawlessness not to be a follower of christ but it's possible to call yourself a follower of christ and still be a worker of lawlessness it's possible to be a member of the institutional church and still not be a member of the kingdom of god because the visible church and the kingdom of god are not the same thing You can even get involved volunteering at the church, helping people in your community, teaching the Bible, any number of things you can do, and you can still one day hear Jesus say those words, I never knew you. You didn't obey my Father, but you lived by your own rules. And we wonder how that can happen. But you know what? There are a number of things that we do all the time that God never does. A number of things that human beings, many human beings do that that God never does. For instance, God never sins. God never lies. God never fails. God never breaks a promise. Can I tell you one other thing that God doesn't do that a lot of people here do? God never fills out 1099 forms. And if you know what that is, you know what I'm saying. The reason that God never fills out 1099 forms is that there are no independent contractors in the kingdom of God. There are only family members who are totally bought into the mission and they are dependent upon its success. So you don't make a deal with God. You don't sign a contract with God. You don't expect something in return for your labor. That's actually a form of lawlessness. If you are truly part of God's kingdom, you do not negotiate an agreement with God. You surrender to God. Because you are bought and paid for with the blood of His Son, and you belong to Him body and soul. And there are people in the church today who seem to think that they've made some kind of a deal with God or they're doing Him a favor or they're earning their way to some sort of reward with Him. And on that day, if they hear Jesus dismiss them from His presence, they might respond, what are you talking about after all the time I spent in that church building? After all the potlucks I attended? All the committees I sat on? All the money I gave? 
But that is entirely the opposite of what it means to serve Jesus. Because in order to serve Him, we must first by faith belong to Him. And that means surrendering to His love and to His plan for us. Not negotiating the terms of our employment, but living as joyful bond servants. Oh, and by the way, our dad owns the business. Other so-called work for God is really just another form of lawlessness. But, now that I've upset you, here's the fourth thing that you can be sure of this morning. This lawlessness that is going to be uprooted from the kingdom of God and done away with and burned in the fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, this lawlessness can be forgiven. You can't make a deal with God, but you can come to Him with your hands up, surrendering, and sue for peace. And that's what he wants you to do. But he, he will forgive you even the worst kinds of lawlessness. Paul in Romans 4, 7 says this, Blessed are those whose lawlessness has been forgiven. Amen. How does this happen? Paul says how two verses earlier. He says, And to the one who does not work, isn't on contract with God, or thinks he is, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Amen. It's getting late in the sermon. And it's about the time when my favorite congregation member, who is not here today, she's in children's church, but she would say to me at this time, honey, I love you, but it's time for a story. <laughs> so here's a story. This is not one I would get credit for, but it's a story. There was once a man who never lived by his own rules, but he loved the law of God and obeyed it completely and perfectly. He came up against all the causes of sin that we encounter today, but every single time he said no to sin and yes to God. And yet that man was treated like the greatest lawbreaker in history, being cursed according to the law and hung on a tree until he died a hated and forsaken criminal. But because of what that man did, any lawless person can come to that man today and trade his or her criminal record for a perfectly spotless record of obedience. Amen. True story, by the way. <laughs> Are you a lawless person? Have you ever lived by your own rules and by doing so basically told God to take a hike? Or maybe even you've been serving Him, but, but according to your own rules, and the conditions that you've put on him. The good news is that God will freely forgive you if you come to him trusting in that perfect man, Jesus Christ. And then the good news gets even better because Titus 2.14 says that Jesus came to redeem his people from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Jesus doesn't just leave you in your lawless state of rebellion as merely some forgiven criminal who's been spared execution. No, he then changes you from the inside out. And by his indwelling spirit, he makes you more like him so that one day you can really shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. And even now, though a lot of things may be going to bad to worse all around you, you can still shine. You can be a beacon of kingdom light, pointing the rebels to the one who will welcome them back if they just surrender to him. Yes. Let's pray.